It's good to see everyone here today, and we're so grateful for the opportunity to uh, start our service with a worship song like that, and then uh, with a couple baptisms. And so let me just remind us a little bit about uh, baptism, just for a quick second here. Baptism is uh, a a command of Jesus Christ that uh, he's told us to uh, uh, follow him and to show what he has done internally in us. Uh, by giving us repentance and changing our lives. And so this is an opportunity for people then to to publicly proclaim what Jesus has done. Some people have said that this is when faith becomes public, so to speak. So we have two two, uh, young men today who are going to have their faith go public today, and they're going to read their testimonies to you. And uh, then uh, after the baptisms, Wayne will uh, take the vote on their membership. But uh, you get to sit back and and enjoy uh, listening to God's working in their lives. And uh, both of these men uh, I have spent a good amount of time with and have just so appreciated to see what God's doing in their lives. And I know that uh, people have been praying for them, and, and so we're just so grateful for this day. So this is an opportunity for you to listen and see what uh, God has done in their lives, and we can see the, the picture of baptism, of what Christ has done in their lives. And we're standing in a bunch of water here, and uh, the reason for that is because uh, it's a sign of that we are identifying with Christ in his death and his burial and his resurrection. And uh, there's multiple angles to the symbolism here. Uh, Another is that we're immersed in God's love and forgiveness and his protection. And so in just a minute here, you're going to hear two men talk about that. So, so grateful for this opportunity today. We're going to start with Jacob, Jacob Krause. And so he's going to come in and share his testimony. Hello, everybody. Um, I want to start my testimony off in the form of a sort of doctrinal confession and then finish it off with my conversion story. So the confessions, um, God is the universe's creator in all that lies within. There is no one greater. He is perfect and unchanging. God is comprised of the Trinity, three distinct persons, one being, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. The Bible is God's inspired and inerrant word written to us so that we may know him. Jesus Christ, being Fully God and fully man, was born of the Virgin Mary, lived a sinless life, died by crucifixion, and rose again after three days and sat down at the right hand of the Father, being the propitiation for our sin so that we may be made right with God again. Salvation is not earned. It is a gift by the grace of God alone, through faith in Jesus Christ alone, to the glory of God alone. I am a sinner. Um, This baptism represents me being washed clean of my sin into new life, and with it, I declare my love and dedication to follow Jesus Christ publicly. And lastly, I acknowledge that my new life should be marked with a lifestyle in keeping with my initial repentance and obeying Jesus' commands. So that's it for the confessions. Um, So since I was young, I have always known that God existed, I've not always been a Christian, but the marks of God's presence in existence have always been obvious to me. Um, My parents have been Christians since shortly before I was born, but while growing up, while I was growing up, they weren't the most solid in their faith, especially in terms of uh, theology or just as role models. They just weren't that sanctified yet. Um, So the kinds of churches we went to were your typical ask Jesus into your heart um, evangelical churches where the majority of sermons were about exegeting movies like Star Wars or The Matrix. They were horrible. Um, And the youth groups contained nothing of substance. It was just inappropriate games, gross games, stuff like that. I remember asking Jesus into my heart around five or six, but I never knew about repentance and kind of lived off of a works-based salvation. Um, Not necessarily doctrinally, but that's how I applied it. Um, And then eight years later, I was falsely baptized. I didn't know what I was doing. It was just kind of a pressure thing. Um, And then my entire life as a Christian could have been summed up by reading the accounts of Judas. 
Naturally, as a biblically bankrupt teenager, I grew further away from God and shifted into a state of agnosticism. Um, Not that I wasn't sure if God existed, but rather that I just didn't care because I genuinely loved my sin and nothing was going to stop me from enjoying it. Especially coming into my later teen years where I had adult freedoms, so I spent a lot of that time just reveling in my degeneracy. Uh, But I had my first heart-tugging encounter with God when I was 16. It wasn't uh, salvific, but it was, you know, it's kind of a step towards it. Um, I started dating this girl in a youth group, in one of the bad youth groups. And um, to me, she was pretty much your classic Proverbs 31 woman. She showed me what Christianity was really like, what it really meant to be a Christian, and how the love of God was utterly transforming. So she got me going to church. Uh, She taught me what she knew. But I still really struggled with my love of sin and also the questions in my mind like, how could God love me and yet allow me to suffer through the debilitating um, suicidal depression that plagued my life? And because of this struggle, I wouldn't actually repent at that time, and I ended up just growing colder toward him, which just led me into more sin. Um, And then that, in turn, led me into uh, breaking up with her after a couple years, and naturally that kind of left me scarred. even, and I struggled even more severely with what I was already going through in my hopelessness and purposelessness. I pretty much just lived in despair all the time, dealt with constant panic attacks, um, alcoholism, promiscuity. The list goes on. After about three years of that, an old friend and I reconnected, and he himself had apparently become saved, which to me was amazing because he was way more of a degenerate than I was. And that's really saying something, because I was off the deep end. Um, So that just kind of blew my mind. Uh, Matt, if you're watching this, don't be mad. You know it's true. Um, So, yeah, he invited me to start going to church with him. We started talking. And this renewed friendship led me to conversations about God, which is what he, in the end, used to spark a new light in my heart. And after some time... I felt the need to begin reading a dusty Bible I had lying around, and for the first time with an uncalloused heart and open eyes, I saw the truth for what it was. Reading through the Gospels, uh, specifically Matthew and John, gave me an understanding about grace and repentance, my sinfulness, and by God's grace, in my despair, I um, I remember crying out to him by my bedside, repenting of my sin and begging for him to heal me. In those moments, um, the weight of my sin was just gone, and the hopeless despair that wrecked me for what seemed like forever was just over. I'd finally known peace for the first time in my life. Hope was real, and through Jesus Christ, I received the Holy Spirit, and I knew freedom. And that's my story of salvation. Um, It doesn't quite end there. Funny enough, though, after about two years from there, my friend and I realized that the church we were attending was actually kind of a cult. Um... It was like a very heretical, charismatic, NAR-type thing. So it was like out of the frying pan into the fire. Um, I get saved, and then I'm immediately in a cult. Um, But God used that experience for growing us. In there, I was pretty dedicated to my mentors, and they let me teach men's group. Uh, Ironically, though, it was because of my studying for sermons that I realized I was under deception, and once again, God bestowed his grace got us out of there. Um, There's a lot I could say about that time of my life. Uh, There's just a litany of asinine things that I believed, uh, a lot of zany stuff I experienced and did myself. And uh, that's like a whole book's worth of storytelling, so just ask me about it later. So long story short, my friend and I, we both repented and we left. My study of scripture lined me up with Reformed theology, which is what led me here. Um, but after that whole church thing, I was a little scarred, so we, I didn't attend anything for like a year. But naturally, because of that, I was spiritually starving. So one day I just knew I had to, I just furiously Googled the only denomination of church I could trust, which was Baptist. <laughs> and um, Memorial was the first one that came up for me. 
we did try a couple others, but we decided on this one. Um, now that I know that Jeremy probably isn't a heretic, uh, time will tell on that one. I'm wanting Memorial to be my church home, and that's kind of it. Well, for the last comment, I'll hold you under a little bit longer. <laughs> That's okay. <laughs> you know, um, this really has been a blessing, and we've spent a lot of time together, and this is, uh, this is a good moment here. So, so, Jacob, are you trusting in Jesus Christ alone for your salvation? Yes. It is, it is it your desire to be baptized to publicly identify with him today? Yes. All right. There you go. I'm going to turn you this way here. All right. So my brother, it is my privilege to baptize you in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Wait, come on in. So now we have Blake Pollock, and, and Blake has been praying for you for a while, and we've had conversations for a while. So why don't you tell us your story, and don't touch the microphone. <laughs> so as Pastor Jeremy said, my name's uh, Blake Pollock, and I'd like to share my testimony and story as to how I'm standing up here uh, sharing, uh, publicly proclaiming that I need Christ as my Savior. So I've grown up going to church with my family since I can remember. And on September 28, 2008, I was baptized at the age of 16. For several years, I walked the Christian life, but then I let the world slip in and overtake me, overtake me. I went to a very dark place of depression and addictions. Over time, I turned my back on Christianity and just went through the motions. I still went to church, but my heart was not in it. I did this for several years, and I said I could not pretend anymore, and I stopped going to church for some time. But I came back because I was wanting to learn. Over the years, I realized that there was nothing that I could do to save myself. I tried to find true joy, happy, true peace, happiness, and joy in my life and my life situation. I could not find it, though I tried to fill myself with lots of different things. I came to realize that there is only true joy and happiness in the salvation of Jesus Christ. As I continued to go to church, I started a book and Bible study with my dad. As we went on, I had lots of questions. I had the, the head knowledge from going to church and attending a Bible college, but my heart was still not there. I started reading my Bible more, and a verse that I have known for a long time kept coming back to mind. Romans 3.23, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. My thinking was that I had done too many bad things in my life to be saved. On Sundays, as we went through the book of Acts, the life of Paul stood out to me. He was considered a threat to the Christians till one day God got a hold of him. He turned his life around and lived his life completely for Christ. I realized I was nowhere near on the level of Paul. But if Christ saved him, he could save me too. So today, I'm looking out at all of you. As my new family in Christ. With this baptism, it's a symbol of washing off the old man and putting on a new clean man. The journey will not be easy, and I will not be perfect in this walk. I still struggle with a few things. But with all of you as my witnesses, I'm asking you to keep me accountable to my walk. And one day, I hope I can encourage some of you on your walks as well. So, Blake, um, are you trusting in Jesus Christ and him alone for your salvation? Yes. And it is your desire to be baptized and identify with him today? Yes. Brother... This is a moment I have prayed for for a long time, and I know other people have, and it is, it is my honor to baptize you. So, Go ahead. Yeah. so my brother, 
because of God's grace and work in your life and your public testimony of how he has saved you and your desire to walk with him, it truly is my honor, my brother, to baptize you in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost. Praise God. He does mighty things. He saves to the uttermost. We've heard two really just amazing testimonies of what God has done. And it's not done yet. We've got one more. Uh, so I would like to invite Stephanie Pollock to please come up here. I'm going to hand the mic to you. And you can share your testimony with your brothers and sisters here this morning. So my name is Stephanie, and I've been coming to Memorial Baptist Church for about two years. The Lord has certainly grown me since being at Memorial. While writing out my testimony, I went back on the church website and figured out what was the first sermon I heard here. It was on February 10th, 2019, and it was called Rewinding Mark. The first time I came to this church, I was so excited. We started singing His Mercy is More, and I felt renewed. I remember tears coming down my face. For months, I had felt like my relationship with Christ was dry. I was not growing. When I came here, the Lord changed me. I felt a new hope for the journey I was on with Christ. I felt overjoyed to continue my walk with the Lord. That first Sunday that we were here, I was so overwhelmed and thrilled about it that I thought I had to be baptized again. But after praying and talking about it, I realized that I did not need to be baptized again. I was already a Christian, and this was the Lord bringing me closer to Him. I had just been so excited that I wanted to tell and show the whole church about what had happened to me. But I realized that the experience was the Lord showing Himself to me and renewing me. Throughout the Christian walk, I believe that there will be many times of renewal. I grew up in a Christian home, so every day I would hear the gospel taught in some way. Mom and Dad would do devotions in the morning or read scripture at the table, and every meal would begin with a prayer asking God for his guidance in our lives and thanking him for what he had already done. At a very young age, I saw my mom and dad grow in their faith, and I watched as my siblings became followers of Christ. At that point, I didn't fully understand what Christ had done for me, but I knew he loved me, and I knew I loved him. I remember wanting to write out scripture for family members. I would pray for others. I wanted people to know that they were loved by Christ. I would read the verse from Romans 10.10, If you declare with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For it is with your heart that you believe and are justified, and it is with your mouth that you profess your faith and are saved. When I was nine, this verse became truth to me. I came to understand that I was a sinner, and because of that, I was separated from God forever. But I am so thankful that that was not where my story ended. Because of God's everlasting love, grace, and mercy, he sent his son to take the sins of the world on his shoulders and to die the death I should have died. Three days later, he rose again, a perfect sacrifice accepted by God. Several weeks after understanding this truth, I was baptized. God is teaching me to trust him more. I am a certified medical assistant at our local clinic. I love my job. I love being able to comfort hurting people through what I do. However, when I see all of the struggling people, it is very hard. But I need to be reminded of God's faithfulness. God is stretching me and growing me. I do not trust him perfectly, but that is because I am not perfect. Only my Savior is. If my Savior has overcome death, there is nothing for me to fear, there is nothing for me to control, and there is nothing for me to be anxious about. I am in the palm of his hands, and he loves me. Galatians 2.20 says, I have been crucified with Christ, and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. 
I am a sinner saved by grace. I want to join Memorial Baptist Church as a member because I think we have a common purpose, to glorify God. I want to be united in a church with fellow believers. I need you to come alongside me and help me grow in Christ, and I want to try to do the same for you. We serve an almighty God, and we are called to serve him together. That was a marvelous sermon. You know, good, good theology, great doctrine, and a tender heart for the gospel. So thank you, Stephanie, for sharing your testimony. At this point, I would, if you're a member of Memorial Baptist Church, I would like to call a brief business meeting to order to vote on the membership, uh, of extending membership to uh, Blake Pollock, Jacob Krause, and Stephanie Pollock, based on their testimonies and their baptisms. Um, I would entertain a motion from someone, oh my goodness, isn't that great? <laughs> uh, Lisa uh, made a motion, and did I see your hand up, Jeff? Jeff's hand, second. All those in favor, signify by saying amen. amen. Those opposed, the same sign. The motion carries. Wow, this has been a marvelous morning. Just marvelous. Um, let's uh, go to the Lord in prayer. Pray especially for those uh, that have just joined our congregation. Father, you are great and greatly to be praised. We come into your courts with thanksgiving. We are grateful for the work that you have done in creation and in creating new uh, creatures in Christ, new men and women in Christ. Father, we thank you for Jacob's testimony. Uh, it's really a testimony to your faithfulness, to your goodness, to your patience, to your mercy. Father, I pray that you would cause him to walk in the light as Jesus is in the light. And I pray, Father, that uh, we as a congregation would be an encouragement to him, that we would help him to grow in his faith and be strengthened in his faith. And I pray, Father, that he also would be of benefit here in the body as each of us does our part. Father, thank you for Blake Pollock and for his testimony. Lord, uh, no one, no one, not even the Apostle Paul, was too far gone. In the eyes of most Christians in his day, uh, he was gone. He was far gone. And yet, you worked a miracle. Perhaps not uh, the, the same miracle that you work in everyone's heart. Clearly, you, you used a display of your glory that he needed. Uh, but obviously, Blake has seen the glory of Jesus and has come to him as his place of rest. And we pray, Father, that you would cause Blake to continue to rest in you and trust your promises and live your word. I pray as a congregation we would help him in that. And we thank you because we know you can do that. Uh, you are mighty to save and you are mighty to keep. And then, Father, I thank you for this young woman, Stephanie Pollock, who has clearly demonstrated her love for you and her love for your word and her love for others. And I pray, Father, that you would bless her deeply, that you would encourage her uh, that you would help her to be a blessing to others in this congregation and in her workplace. And also, Father, that we would be a blessing and encouragement and examples to her. Father, your name is wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, the Prince of, Father, Prince of Peace, and we worship you. Accept our worship in Jesus' name. Amen. 1 Corinthians 11, verses 17 through 34. But in the following instruction, I do not commend you, because when you have come together, it is not for the better, but for the worse. For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you. And I believe it in part, for there must be factions among you in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. When you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper that you eat. For in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry, another gets drunk. What? 
do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I commend you in this? No, I will not. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night that he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, also he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat and drink this bread, eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Whoever, therefore, eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. That is why many of you are weak and ill, and some have died. But if we judged ourselves truly, we would not be judged. But when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined, so that we may not be condemned along with the world. So then, my brothers, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. If anyone is hungry, let him eat at home, so that when you come together, it will not be for judgment. About the other things, I will give you directions when I come. Let me encourage you to take your copy of God's Word and go to that text that Lisa just read for us. Uh, That is in 1 Corinthians 11. If you're using one of the Bibles that perhaps you picked up on the way in, this will be page 958. I remember as a kid, uh, my mom encouraging me to have good table manners. Uh, No elbows on the table, right? You know, don't chew with your mouth open, right? You know, no belching at the table, you know, those type of things, right, you know? Um, and, uh, you know, some of those is, is the ones I just mentioned, those are pretty universal. Uh, there are some cultural things that uh, Anouk and I, we discovered uh, when we got married because of her uh, European-French uh, heritage, uh, there's different table manners. Uh, for one, uh, you always keep, you rest your hands on the table uh, in her culture, and I was always taught, no, you keep your hands in your lap and not on the table. And so that's come up a couple times, uh, just like the, the, the differences, right? Okay. And so, you know, there's difference in, in manners and things like that and stuff like that. But what about when it comes to the Lord's table? We were talking as a small group last Sunday night, and I, I, taught, I, I mentioned that I was thinking about teaching on the Lord's Supper this Sunday. I'm in that weird time where we finished the Acts series, and then we only had a couple, three weeks between them when I leave for sabbatical. And so, I, you know, it wasn't time to dive into a new book or things like that. So last week I thought it was important to teach on baptism. And I thought, well, it's been a, a while since I preached a message on the Lord's Supper, and we're having a Lord's Supper today. So I was talking to my small group about that, and I said, hey, you know, what do you think? What, what, what angle, what questions or things like that would you have? And, and it, it, it came up that uh, this text here, particularly the, the end of it, the warning passage that Paul gives here says, you know, let a man examine himself and uh, that there's, you know, some people are sick and some even died and stuff. And so the question was, you know, uh, I mean, how much of that is relevant to us today and what should we be thinking about that and what does that really mean and stuff? And so I started thinking about you know, is there strict protocol, like table manners, that we have to have in order to have at the Lord's Supper? What is this uh, text teaching? And part of that was because of, some of you know that uh, I've, I've given some time to study the Lord's Supper. It's been a, a subject that I've really enjoyed studying and learning about over the last several years. And uh, it's just kind of this constant thing that I'm studying. And part of it was because of my background I grew up in a culture where it was, uh, the Lord's Supper was seen in a very strict memorial sense, meaning, uh, what I mean by that is that uh, it was just representation of the death of Jesus Christ, and that's it. And, uh, but it was a very solemn, introspective occasion. We would do it on Sunday nights. We had our Sunday night service then in the church I grew up in. And, and I, I'm indebted to the church I grew up in for, uh, for many things. When it came to observing the Lord's Supper, uh, it was, like I said, highly introspective. 
perspective. And I remember they would dim the lights down, and uh, we would do it on Sunday night, as I said, and, and uh, the deacons would pass out the, uh, the elements to us. They would go down the rows, and our church did that for many years. And so we, yeah, that's great, and that's a great way to do it. One thing, though, that I remember being drilled in us over and over again was, listen, you've got to make sure that you are not unworthy when you take the Lord's Supper. And they would look at this text that we just read here. They would say, you know, you got to make sure that you are not unworthy to do. So that means you've got to confess all of your sins. And so here I am. I'm a young guy, young boy, um, wanting to, to please God, right? Okay. Probably didn't want to die either, okay? Uh, so there was that. And so I, I remember just thinking and, and like trying to think of every sin I had committed in the previous month. We did it monthly, and so I was like, okay, you know, and so I'm like, I, 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 just God, please forgive me. Oh, yeah, yeah, I fought with Jason. I fought with my brother. Yes, God, that was wrong. I shouldn't have done that. Please forgive me. And then you do the little peek open, see where the deacons are at. Okay, they're still far away. Good. Okay. And so, it's, okay, God, oh, I was disrespectful to my mom. Yeah, that was, I shouldn't have done that and everything. Please forgive me for that. Okay, and Lord, you know, and then so as they were coming closer to my row, I was thinking, okay, Lord, and then, and then and it starts being passed down to me, and then it would be like, Lord, and, and anything else, anything else that I have not, I just remember, please forgive me for it, because I know I'm wrong, I'm sinner, please forgive me, and then I'd pass it on, okay? That literally was the internal battle that was going on in my soul. I probably wasn't as physically outward as showing as I was, but that's what was going on, because I took this very seriously, and it was drilled into me, you got to take this in a worthy manner. So is that what this text is teaching, okay? Or is it a part of it? What part of that was helpful, what was not helpful? And so what I want to do, and and really is how can we even know? So what I want to do is I thought about it as I wanted to address that specific question today. What I thought I would do is I would also just walk us through a four-step process interpreting the Scripture. Okay, so what I'm going to do is, I want to do this, I'm just going to walk through a way that you interpret Scripture, uh, so it'll help us with this specific question today, but also it'll help you in the future. It'll help you as you're doing your personal Bible reading, as you listen to messages and things like that. And so what I'm doing is I'm, I'm, I'm taking a, a, a four-step method from a textbook that I uh, use when I teach uh, this course. I teach a, a course uh, in India, and then I've taught in other places as well. It's called uh, the text, the, the subject is called hermeneutics, which is, has nothing to do with a guy named Herman. It is just about Bible interpretation. That's the book here on the left here called Grasping God's Word by Duval and Hayes. Excellent book. Um, and then the right, you see a graphic that's going to come up a couple times throughout the sermon today. That's the, the main graphic that they use to talk about how to uh, interpret Scripture. So what we're going to do is we're going to walk this through today, uh, kind of like in a lecture format, and then we're going to look at this specific text as a case study, okay? And so like I said, I think it'll help us understand this text, but also give you some tools to understand, read, and apply the Scriptures more faithfully. Now, before I pray and ask God's blessing, let me just tell you that there are are a couple of pitfalls that we want to avoid always when we're interpreting the scriptures. And there's a couple ways to look at this. One is what is called the intuitive approach, okay? And that is whatever the text feels like it means to you. We want to avoid that, okay? Uh, We're not interested in determining the meaning of a text, okay? We are interested in finding the meaning of the text that God has for us, okay? So the intuitive approach is, well, I feel like this verse says this, or I feel like this means that. Well, you know, God does use our feelings, and I'm not saying that's wrong, but I'm saying that's not authoritative. And so when we're looking at interpreting the scriptures, we want to avoid that. The other pitfall to avoid avoid is called the spiritualized approach, or the highly spiritualized approach. And what that basically means, or we could call an allegorical approach, where everything has an underlying spiritual meaning in the text. Now, for sure, there are allegories in the scriptures, and for sure God uses that to communicate. But if we approach every text that way, we're going to make some mistakes. So, for instance, uh, there's a, um, uh, one of the early church fathers, he 
interpreted the, the parable of the Good Samaritan in a highly allegorized way or spiritualized way. And so if you remember that story, this was when Jesus was asked the question, who is my neighbor? And Jesus then goes into the story about a man who was going uh, uh, from uh, on the road to Jericho, and he was beaten and left for dead. And then two people walked by and didn't help him of religious persuasion and stuff, and they, they avoided him. But then the Samaritan came. And of course, he was talking, Jesus was telling this to a Jewish audience, and so they hated the, the Samaritans. And so Jesus making him the hero of the story just probably chafed him really bad. And so, so the Samaritan then helps this person who was beat uh, and pays for his, his care and all that stuff and just really helps. And so Jesus is saying, this is your neighbor. One church father who was uh, interpreting this text, he had this, like, the road represented something. The animal on which the person was carried represented something. And it is this complex, very, very intricate interpretation of this parable. You know, that, that could be a fun thing to do, but it's just not faithful to what Jesus was trying to teach. So we want to avoid those two pitfalls, okay? So what I hope to do today uh, is just show you four quick steps that will, in this this will be a, a picture guide that I get from Duval and Hayes that hopefully will be helpful to you. Okay? So what I'm going to do is I'm going to pray, ask God's blessing, and then we'll dive in and work through this pretty quickly this morning. Father, I want to take some time to hopefully help us learn to interpret the scriptures in a faithful way because this is your word. Uh, we, 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 we don't want to mess with what you have written, and we don't want to impose upon the text something that you had, do not intend for us to, to impose upon it. So I pray that this discussion will be helpful, and I pray that it would be faithful and clear, and that I would be able to communicate in a way that would be pleasing to you. And so, Father, uh, and then as we look at this specific warning passage about the Lord's Supper, I pray that that would be helpful to us as well. So, God, I, I, I need your enablement uh, to speak here. I need your, your spirit to guide me, and, and uh, I pray you keep us free from distraction and help us to focus in in a few minutes. And what a great day we've already had so far in this worship service. And to you be, uh, belongs all the glory. For it's in Christ's name we do pray. Amen. All right, for the, so the first step that we're going to look at over here uh, on this uh, graphic here is uh, we want to grasp the text in their town, okay? This is what Duvall and Hayes talk about in their textbook there of grasp the text in their town. And so that's uh, this side of the river. We're going to talk about the river here in a second here. What that means is, is when we're grasping the text into their town, this is the investigation stage, okay? So we're not making any applications. So when you first read a text of Scripture, sometimes we make the, the, the mistake of immediately going to application, immediately going to, oh, okay, this means this is how I'm going to apply it to my life here. Whoa, whoa, slow down for a second here because we want to make sure that we're being faithful in our application of the text of Scripture. And so we're doing some investigation in this stage here. And so as you can see, some questions to ask here are your basic questions. Who, what, where, when, why, and how. And, and you're just gathering information about the text and you're trying to, to figure out, okay, what is, what is being communicated here? Uh, I don't, and I'm giving you a high-level overview because uh, when I teach this in another way, I talk about genre. I talk about, you know, that means what type of literature the Bible is. The Bible is not just one type of literature, okay? It's actually a library. The Bible has poetry. It has uh, historical narrative. It has all sorts of uh, different types of literature that that's going to affect how we interpret the scriptures, Okay. We won't get into all that, but I'll just say this, is that we need to look at, okay, what was being communicated to the original audience? What would they have said about this? What would they have understood? What was going on? Who is being addressed in it? Where is this happening? Is this happening in Israel? Is this happening... In Nineveh, like the story of Jonah, is this happening someplace else? Is this arena in heaven, like the story that we have of the conversation in the beginning of Job with God and Satan? Okay, so where is this happening? How, what is all the situation? So these are the questions that we're asking as we're looking at trying to interpret the text of Scripture. So specifically here, we want to make sure what we do is not just look at the very individual place, but what about the entire book? We're in 1 Corinthians 11. That means there's 10 chapters that have happened before 1 Corinthians 11. In order for us to be faithful in our interpretation of what is happening in 1 Corinthians 11, we need to understand what has happened in the first 10 chapters and really the whole purpose of the book. Because if you were to write a letter to someone and they were to take out one phrase of that letter, 
and make a, a sweeping application out of that, that would be frustrating to you. If you put a letter out there and you, in that letter you said something, you know, to the effect of, um, you know, uh, uh, I don't know, like, um, I, wish, uh, I wish that you were in poor health. And then you put later on, you know I'm just teasing, right? Or something like that. But if someone just took that phrase, I wish you were in poor health, and said, man, this person hates you and all this stuff or something like that, you'd be like, wait, 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 you've ripped it out of context, right? I mean, this happens all the time. And so when it comes to the biblical scriptures, we've got to make sure that we do the same thing here as well. So just as an overview, this is what's going on in 1 Corinthians. Uh, uh, Paul is writing to a church that he helps start. We read about that in Acts. And he helps start this church. And there's a lot of problems in this church. There's tremendous amounts of problems uh, that they were going through. And so he's addressing some of these things. And some of them were actually, he's responding to questions that were asked of him in there, and you got to look for that. So in chapters 1 and 1 through 4, we see that there were obvious and unhelpful divisions in the church. And so this is one of the reasons why, you know, Paul says, hey, listen, you know, some of you are saying I'm of Paul, some of you are saying of Apollos. And then he makes a curious statement there. He says, I'm grateful that I baptize very few of you. Now, does that mean that he's saying that baptism is not important? No, that's not what he's saying. Because it's in the context that people were saying, hey, I'm of Paul, I'm of Paul. Listen, I was baptized by so-and-so, so therefore I have a, a greater pedigree than you do. Paul's saying, I'm glad that I'm not even involved in this because that's going to muddy the waters. You are totally misunderstanding this. So some people can say, well, see, baptism is not important because Paul says he was grateful they didn't baptize many people. But that's not what his point was. It was divisions in the church that people were saying, hey, listen, I'm of Paul, I'm of Paul. So we see that in chapters 1 through 4. There was sexual sin and confusion. We see some very specific examples given in chapters 5 through 7 that there's dealing with there in the church. And he says, no, you cannot do this. Chapters 8 through 10, there was a problem with and questions about idolatry, specifically in eating meat offered to idols was a common theme there. Chapters 11 through 14, there was issues with the worship service practices. We see this about the order of service. We see this about spiritual gifts being displayed in a worship service. We see this in the Lord's Supper here. So now we're starting to see, wait a minute here, okay, this is the, 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 the category or what he is addressing in the book where we're at. So now we can start making some more faithful interpretation. And then in chapter 15, they needed some clarification about the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And then chapter 16 is just an ending of the book, kind of a greeting, here's my, my plans in the future. And that's a quick overview of the book. To understand this verse here, these couple verses here that are being called into question about what does Paul mean when he says that anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment to himself, for that is why many are weak and ill and some have died. You know, in order to understand that, we need to understand the larger context of the book. But not just that. This is why it's so fun. And I get to do this all the time, right? I get to dive into this. This is so much fun. Some of you are like, eh, not so much. Yeah, 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 it's fun. All right, so all right, the immediate context, okay? So not only do we want to look at the entire book, but then we want to kind of look at, okay, what is the immediate context of our verse in question here? We know that our text, our verse in question here, is within the section about worship service practice. That's helpful to us. Okay, he's talking specifically about how, when they're gathering together and what the worship services should look like. Uh, there were divisions among the church members when observe, observing the Lord's Supper. You see, this is what verse 18 says in our text. For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you. So right there, we have a big clue of how to interpret the text later on, what Paul is dealing with. He's, he's highlighting, he's introducing the issue, and he says, this is the problem here. There's divisions among the church. It appears also there have been unbelievers who are observing the Lord's Supper as well in their midst. Because verse 19, it says, For there must be factions among you in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. He says, okay, so the ones who are genuine here, the, you, you need to recognize that. So if there's genuine, he's making that distinction. What does that give us a clue of? Well, it could be that people were uh, uh, observing the Lord's Supper and they didn't even have faith in God. Uh, we also see in verse 20 and 21 that the divisions seem to be along economic lines. It says, for in eating, verse 21, each one goes ahead with his own meal. And he's telling, he's describing what they're doing and why it's wrong. He says in verse 22, what? Do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing 
What shall I say to you? Shall I commend you in this? No, I will not. And so it's a, it appears that part of the problem is an economic division here where we have the haves and have-nots in the church of Corinth. In the church of Corinth. We have people who were uh, blessed with material blessings and those who did not have as much material blessings. And that it appears by looking at this text here that when they would come together on the worship service, they would have the Lord's Supper together and some of them were using it as an opportunity to feast and get drunk even, where others, they had nothing. And Paul's saying, you have houses to eat and drink, and that's not the purpose of the Lord's Supper. That leads us to, it appears that the Lord's Supper became more about physical hunger and feasting. I already read verse 21, but verse 34 says, if anyone's hungry, let him eat at home, so that when you come together, it will not be for judgment. And so he's saying that, you know, the point of the Lord's Supper isn't that we're having this massive feast here for your physical hunger to be satisfied. And this is one of the reasons why we, yeah, we just have a little piece of bread and we have a little cup of juice here because the point of the Lord's Supper here is not to quench our hunger, okay? The point of it is to nourish us spiritually. And so we see that this has been an error that's happening here. And so, this is all data that's going to be very helpful to us as we interpret the text in question later on. It seems that Paul, he deems that many in the church, the Corinthian church, were observing the Lord's Supper in an unworthy manner. And we've, this is what we're, we're getting close to what our question is. Verse 27, whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of profaning the body and blood of the Lord. So looking at all of what we've had, looking at all of this information, looking at all this, who, what, where, when, why, and how, we've got a good understanding of what's happening. Now we're going to look at how do we then apply it. But we're not quite there yet. We've got a couple steps here to do. So let's, let's move ahead on this. The next step, according to Duvall and Hayes in their book, is you measure the widths of the river, the cross, okay? Now, what they do here is uh, they're, they're saying that the, the river is what's separating, they're using the metaphor of a river, is what separates from their uh, uh, situation and our situation. Now, sometimes the difference between us and them is short. I mean, it's just a quick hop over the river. Other times it's really, really wide and, and the span is much bigger. So the questions to ask in this text are, what are the differences between their town and our town? So now as we're looking at interpretive journey, we're saying, okay, we've seen what's going on there. What's the difference between us and them? And so culture, language, this is the reason why we got to look at what words mean. We got to look up word studies often to see, you know, if you ever hear preachers or teachers and they talk about, well, the Greek says this and everything like that. Well, there's a reason for that. It's because the New Testament was written in Greek originally. Okay, it was not written in English. And over time, when words are translated, we need to make sure that we're understanding what the original word is. I don't know if you've ever done any type of second language or third language studies, but if you've ever studied another language, you'll know that translation work is actually pretty difficult. You will understand that it's not always as apparent of what words should be used in what situation. It's not always a, an A to A uh, correlation. Like, oh, you say this in Spanish, so this is in English. No, oftentimes, it, there's a different sense or a different feel to it. Um, uh, often, since French is... Uh, my wife's first language, uh, we'll, we'll be talking and she'll still, and she's been speaking English forever, it seems like, but she will, she will, she will say, ah, it's just, ah, and she's trying to think of an English word that will capture the essence of something. And so there's this phrase about eating um, that, uh, what is it, that like you, you get hungry as you eat? What is that? What, what is Okay, I'm not even going to try to pronounce it, but it's basically your appetite comes as you eat, okay? And that's a phenomenon that we've all experienced, but we don't have an English word for that. We don't have an English phrase for that, okay? But she's got to try to figure that out and communicate with me. Uh, with the different languages. So that's one of the differences. So we look at, okay, what are the differences? And so we start to look at different languages. And I'm not saying everyone has to know Greek in order to interpret the Bible. That's not my point. My point, though, is if we're going to be faithful people who are studying the Scriptures, we at least need to consider those uh, categories and options. 
Um, situation, time, even covenant, those are some differences as well. As I said, sometimes it's narrow, and it's just a short hop across because, like, even in our text today, the differences are much less than if we were to be looking at a text, let's say, in Judges. There would be a lot more differences between what was happening in Judges uh, than what was happening for us uh, today. So our text does show some differences, and we could spend a lot of time trying to figure that out, but uh, I'll just give you a few uh, here. Um, the difference here is that when Paul's writing this, he's writing to a very specific church with a specific problem. He's not writing to Memorial Baptist Church in Verona, Wisconsin. He's writing to the Church of Corinth, okay, in that time. Uh, it appears that the Lord's Supper was part of the weekly gathering of the believers. This is what appears in, in the text here. We don't do it weekly. We do it every other week right now. And so that would be a difference. Another difference would be that it appears that the Lord's Supper was added to or even replaced by a larger meal or feast. We don't do that here. We don't have a feast around the Lord's Supper. We have the simple meal here, here. And so it appears, though, in this text that there was a larger meal that was being attached to uh, the Lord's Supper. We could try to find out more, but you get the point that there are some differences that we're going to need to look at if we're going to properly interpret the Scripture here. So looking at this text, we see some of the differences there. So we have looked at the text in uh, their town. We have looked at the differences. Duvall and Hayes in their book talk about that's measuring the width of the river to cross. Then the third of the fourth step is this, and that is that we cross the principalizing bridge. And if you write the word principalizing, the little red squiggly line is going to come under there. It's a made-up word, okay? I'm just going to save you the trouble right now, okay? I'm just going to save you the trouble, right? I clicked on that thing a thousand and one times, okay? So uh, that is a made-up word, okay? Cross the principalizing bridge. What that basically means is now we got to get over the differences, and we got to get into our town. What does that look like? Okay, so in the last section, we were looking for differences, right? Okay, when we're measuring the width, we're looking what's different between us and them. In this step, we're actually looking for similarities, okay, between us and them. Now we're looking for similarities. So um, both, like if we're going to do that with our church and their church, or our situation and their situation, we're both New Testament churches, okay? We are both uh, churches that have been formed uh, after Jesus Christ rose from the dead and ascended into heaven, and so we're both New Testament churches. Both of us observe the Lord's Supper. We're both churches. We're made up of people of a variety of situations, background, financial status, and ability, uh, that was obvious in their context because you have the haves and have-nots. I know in our context, we have people of all different economic situations. We have people of different talents and abilities and a uh, variety of backgrounds and situations. We're both comprised of sinners, susceptible to selfishness, greed, apathy, and ignorance. And so just like the, the, all the things that they are dealing with there, it, we could very easily be dealing with it in our congregation, in our situation as well. Again, we could spend a lot more time trying to find it. I'm just giving you the, the, the high-level view of this process, okay? So those are some of the similarities. After we look for the similarities, we then find a principle that will bridge over the distance from their town to our town, okay? So we've been faithful to what was happening there. We're measuring what we have to cross. Now, in the, 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 the similarities, differences, now we're going to try to find a principle that will carry from there to our town and so that we can be faithful to what Paul is teaching here. Okay? And so, if I'm looking at this, one principle that we could take from this text here is this here. I wrote it out. Since God showed how important the Lord's Supper is when he disciplined the church over their practice of the Lord's Supper, we should follow Paul's admonition to the Corinthian church to be careful, reverent, and intentional in our observance of the Lord's Supper. Hey, I'm a pastor. I'm wordy. Okay, all right, I get it. You, you, could, you, could, you could do something shorter than that, uh, something. But there's a principle. Look at what we're trying to gather. There. We're saying, okay, God's importance in the Lord's Supper, that's coming out of the text because if he's judging the people for their... Uh, 
misuse of the Lord's Supper, it must be important to God. So there's a principle that we're going to highlight there. Um, uh, We should follow Paul's admonition to the church to be careful, reverent, and intentional in our observance of the Lord's Supper. That's what he's saying there. He's saying, listen, you you can't do this. You have to be much more cautious and much more careful with how you're observing the Lord's Supper. And so that's why these warning passages are there. Okay, that's a principle. We're still not quite done yet. We got one last step. We got the principle, but then we got to drive it home to our situation through application. So that's when they, Duvall and Hayes, in their book, talk about grasping the text in our town. And so this is where then we uh, basically, what we're doing is we're asking this question here is, how do we apply the principle or principles that we forged in step three? Okay, so it's, it's one thing to get a principle. It's another thing to say, now what do we need to do with it? Okay, okay so the principle was God honors or, or God reveres the Lord's Supper and, and he disciplines those who, uh, who mess, mess with it and we need to be careful and stuff like that. So then how would we then apply this text here? So I want to, in the last few minutes that we have together this morning, I want to walk us through three application points, okay? All right, so... Basically, what I've done up until this point is I've pulled the curtain back onto what I do in my office uh, many hours every week, okay? And I don't necessarily always cognitively follow each one of these because after you do it for a while, you just kind of do it. But these are the questions. These are the process. This is the time so that when we make application, we're being faithful to the text and we're not just saying, you know what? Um, I think uh, this would be good for us to make this as something that our church thinks about. It's what does the text of scripture say? So let's make these application points as we grasp the text into our town. First of all, The Lord's Supper provides regular opportunities for spiritual nourishment. And this is an application we need to make so that when we approach the table on this Sunday here, we understand that the purpose is not to fill our bellies, okay? That is very apparent in the text. The purpose of this is so that we are spiritually nourished. It's, it's an opportunity for us to have a routine, a regular time of spiritual nourishment. This is why we can contrast this when he says, if anyone is hungry, let him eat at home. Okay? So it's very obvious in this text that how we approach this table is not about physical satisfaction, but it's about spiritual nourishment. And so that is going to inform then how you approach the table and how I approach the table. That's going to inform whether or not we, this is just a, 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 a snack bowl we're reaching into where we're mindlessly watching the game or something, or whether or not this is for a greater purpose than just satisfying the physical craving that we face when we're watching the game or watching TV or sitting at a table together. See, this is a a spiritual nourishing time for us. So that would be one application point that I would drive home from this text is that there is, this is a time for spiritual nourishment. That's going to help us understand the warning. Because if he's warning them against when says some of you are sick and some of you even died, okay? And he's talking about, yes, I believe even physically, but he's also talking spiritually, He's talking about how that they have just ignored what God had for them at the table. Now, to be clear, I want to make sure I'm clear. I do believe Paul is talking about physical sickness and even death in this text. So I don't want anyone to think that I've just pivoted and said that's not physical, it's only spiritual. I didn't say that. I didn't mean to communicate that. But I will say it has a basis in our spiritual understanding of what the table is. There's a second uh, application point. I have three. The second one is that this, the Lord's Supper provides regular opportunities to examine our hearts. Now we're getting right at the heart of the warning here. It says in verse 28, let a man examine himself then and so eat and drink of the cup. So this is the opportunity where we're supposed to uh, examine our hearts. This is what I described at the beginning of the sermon when I was sitting in the seat and just saying, is there any sin? Is there any sin? I don't want to make sure I'm not unworthy to take part of this. Was that good? Was that helpful? There's I I don't know if you're aware, but uh, this was pretty typical in the 1800s. These, uh, let's see here, is it coming up here? These communion tokens. Has anyone ever heard of this before? 
Okay, one, I see, I see one hand in here, okay? All right, this was common in the 1800s, particularly in Scotland, uh, but it was also, it was in Europe, but we do have some evidence in the, in the States as well of this happening in the 1700s. These are three uh, examples of communion tokens. And what this would be, and this would be uh, churches that would practice what's called closed communion, okay? And so it'd be given to the membership that they basically had to prove that they were in good standing. And so they would meet with the church leadership. And uh, often the Lord's Supper was not every Sunday in these situations, uh, but it sometimes was. Um, They would meet with the church leadership, and they would express to them how they've been reading their Bibles, and how they've been memorizing Scripture, and they've been, you know, having their family devotions, and all sorts of things and stuff. And then, so, then the church leadership would issue these tokens. Now, the the coins are more rare because that went away pretty quick, and they started using cards, okay? So, you'll see more, uh, if you start looking at antiquity, you'll see some of these communion cards. And so, what it would be is then you would have to present that uh, and Sunday in order to get the bread or the, the wine or the juice, okay? So you'd have your token or your card or something like this, all right? Um, so I don't know. What do you think? Should we do that? <laughs> You're like, where's he going with that, all right? No, I don't think we should do that. Why do I not think we should do that? Because look at the text. Look at the text. Let a person examine who? Himself. Okay, let a person examine himself. So what that's telling me here is, okay, this is now where I'm going to give instruction to you and how you should have the Lord's Supper. I'm going to do this. But at the end of the day, it's between you and Jesus, right? Okay, it's between you and Jesus whether or not you're going to participate in the Lord's Supper. I'm going to give you all of the stuff, all the reasons and who it's for and the meaning of it. But at the end of the day, I'm asking you to examine yourself. Why? Because we're trying to be faithful to this text of Scripture here that says, let a man examine himself. So while these are cool and they're great collectors and things like that, it's not a practice that I would advocate for us to have here as well. But... What it should do, though, is because I said, uh, to back up a slide here, that it gives us an opportunity to regularly examine our hearts, I think we do need to make sure that we are approaching this table in a way that we're asking ourselves questions like, am I just going through the motions here? What do I really believe about Jesus? Do I appreciate the Lord's Supper as Jesus intends and Paul instructs? Am I willing to ask myself hard questions, or am I in danger of God's discipline? The reason why I say that is, look at verse 31. It says, if we judged ourselves, then we would not be judged. But we're judged by the Lord. We're disciplined, an important word there, so that we may not be condemned along with the world. And so he's basically saying, listen, as believers, God puts a high view on what we're going to do here. And so this is an opportunity for you to examine your heart. Now, I don't think it's a way for us to look at it in a way that I grew up to. And here's the reason why. Because I was so worried about confessing every one of my sins because I did not want to be unworthy when I came to the table. But do you see when I said that, do you see how I misunderstood the text? Look at the text again. Verse 27. Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of profaning the body and blood of the Lord. Notice he didn't say any unworthy person. He said, if you observe it in an unworthy manner, okay? Because the reality is, who here is worthy? Nobody. Nobody is. That's not what he's saying. He's saying here, Don't do it in an unworthy way, meaning that we're not taking it seriously, meaning that we're just flipping about it, meaning that we're attaching it to some other physical need or something, and it's a way of expressing uh, uh, an outward expression of our wealth as what was happening here. It was a way of not caring about other people, which we're going to get to in a second here. So this is an opportunity for us to examine our hearts, not to see if you're a worthy person, but to see if you're appreciating what God has done for you and And then therefore, when you come up to the table and you're understanding that, listen, I am an unworthy sinner. Listen, I I am not someone who who deserves God's forgiveness, but God has said that he'll give it to me if I ask. And so I'm going to worship him in this. I'm going to come up to the table and I'm going to worship him in this. That's a worthy manner of which to, to have the Lord's Supper. So don't make the mistake I made many years ago is that I thought this was talking about that I had to be a worthy person 
And that is wrong. I just have to make sure that I'm doing it in a way that is respecting God's purpose of the table. Hopefully that's making sense. So I would say these are two of the application points. Opportunity for regular spiritual nourishment. Opportunity for regular uh, examining of our hearts. And then the last one would be this. The Lord's Supper provides regular opportunities to uniquely fellowship with other believers. Okay, the Lord's Supper provides regular opportunities to uniquely fellowship with other believers. He says, when you come together, five times in verses 17 through 34, when you come together, this is why we do this together when we come together. Um, and it's the opportunity, he says, listen, in verse 33, when you come together, wait for one another. Um, this is a, another way to understand that would be to receive them or to welcome them. At the very least, this indicates that we must be aware of each other when we're having the Lord's Supper. And so this is one of the reasons why we have people come up to the table here is because it's a visual sign of all of our participation who is participating. And then we can see each other doing this. There is time for introspection at the Lord's Supper, but that's more in preparation. When we're actually having this supper together, it is participatory. We should be seeing each other. We should be fellowshipping with each other and worshiping Jesus together and celebrating what he has done together. And this is why we have people come up to the table and grab the bread and grab the juice and go back and we eat and drink together because that's what he's getting at here. So the warning that he was talking about in this text was not so much about you having to be a worthy person, and if you're not worthy enough, he's going to zap you dead. What is being communicated in here is that these people, and it was a very specific situation, that they were just uh, in, uh, uh, they were flagrantly taking the Lord's Supper and using it to push down other people and elevate themselves. It was an opportunity for them to show their wealth and privilege and whatever word you want to put in there. It was an opportunity for them to, uh, that they had turned it into, that they were, were, were uh, not even considering other people there. That's why he says there's judgment. That's why he says God will discipline you. So will God discipline us in the same way? Maybe. I don't think this is something that we have to say, okay, now if I didn't confess all my sins, then man, I, I might get sick and die of this. No, but if we just come up to the table and we don't really care about it, and we're not even concerned about other people, because this is an opportunity for us to think about how we think of other people. I, I think of a passage where Jesus says, if you come up to offer your offering and uh, you realize you have someone uh, against someone else, then you should leave your offering and go get it right with that person. I think that same principle applies here. That if you know that there's someone that you're having a conflict with in the church and you have not done what you can do to uh, make that right with them, the Lord's Supper should be a reminder to you that you need to be considerate of the other person and you need to uniquely fellowship with that person this way at the Lord's Supper. And if you're not willing to make that right, then don't profane the body and blood of the Lord by having the Lord's Supper saying that all is right, saying that you're, you're, you're walking with Christ to the best of your ability when you're not willing to deal with those conflicts. Now, if there have been situations where you, can, you have tried everything you can and the other person is refusing to reconcile, I don't think you need to withdraw from the table at that point. You've done what you can do. But we have to make sure that we are looking at other people as in, their in, in our fellowship with them at the Lord's Supper. Blake, in his uh, testimony at the end, I hope you picked up on it. He said that he was asking for this church to be his family to help him. And Jacob was saying the same thing, is that we, when you join a church, you're saying, hey, help me grow in Christ. So I hope, I hope all of us took that seriously. And I hope a way that we can be reminded of that is at the table when we eat and drink together, we're saying we are a family. We're a body, a representation of the body of Christ here that he has assembled, and we're different. And that doesn't mean we have to be best friends with everyone, but we have a community here. And by eating and drinking together, we're saying that we want to serve each other and help each other follow Christ. And so this is why we regularly have this table, because it's a reminder to us. So the warning text here is not so much about your worth. It's about how we approach the table. 
And so let's make sure we do it in a worshipful way, understanding who Jesus is and what he's done.